So I don't know about you, but this morning I'd like to focus on something that I know I am very much prone to do, and that is to have this sense that there's times in life when I think God isn't showing up the way God should be showing up from my perspective. And in those times, um, it is very tempting to try to think about how God should be acting so powerfully that, that it warps my perception of God. And so God doesn't look like in my mind the way God actually exists and presents himself in my life and in yours and in scripture. In those times, we're tempted to do what scripture tells us not to do and create an idol that obscures our vision of God. So we want to pay close attention this morning to this passage of scripture we're going to be turning to, uh, to have a clear picture of God and ask ourselves, what does our God truly look like? We're going to be in Exodus chapter 32, and we're going to be looking at a time in the history of God's people when they did what uh, certainly the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well tells us is probably the, uh, the, the, the most damaging thing that human beings can do, and that is to uh, be uh, unhappy with who God is and to create an idol that replaces God in our lives. So let's take a look here at Exodus 32. I'll begin reading at verse 1. It says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there'll be a festival to the Lord. So the Next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offering, offerings, presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. This little story within the life of the history of Israel as they were delivered from bondage in Egypt and were on their way to the promised land it's a fairly well-known story, whether it's well-known or whether it's the first time you're having exposure to this. This uh, story is, is very troubling. However, um, we tend to, um, in, in my opinion and my uh, experience, in hearing people interact with this story and many others like it, we can tend to paint such a one-dimensional picture that we can distance ourselves from the reality of what's being taught here. And I want to help us to all not be uh, so callous to the message that's being 
spoken here. The tendency is to say those Israelites were so stupid. How could they have done this? God was doing what God was doing in their lives. If God was doing that in my life, there's no way I'd, I'd miss that. They're, they're so dumb. Well, we got to be careful. We got to be careful because um, what is, is going on here is something that continues to go on, uh, has gone on throughout biblical history, goes on today, and it can go on in your, your life and mine. And speaking for myself, I know the temptation for this to happen on a regular basis. So let's try to enter into what exactly is going on here and why these things are happening. So setting the stage, obviously we're jumping into the middle of a story. This is Exodus chapter 32. There's a lot that's been going on there. So let's paint the picture, uh, you know, back uh, a few chapters prior, Exodus 19, after God had delivered the Israelites from, uh, from under the bondage of Pharaoh in Egypt. Um, probably know the story, right? By taking them through the Red Sea and then as the uh, armies of Pharaoh chased them. The Red Sea came crashing down on, on them and wiped them out once the Israelites were safe. And prior to that, even to get to the Red Sea, God had done all the miracles in Egypt to bring uh, Pharaoh to the point where he, he, uh, he, he couldn't say no anymore to let them go because of the, the plagues and the, uh, the pestilence that was brought upon Egypt. God had shown himself powerful in the life of Israel by knocking down to size the most powerful superpower in the region, Egypt itself. And God had delivered his people here to the foot of Mount Sinai, out in the wilderness, outside of Egypt, between Egypt and the Promised Land. And God is about to uh, deliver his law, his instructions to the Israelites on how they were to set up the kingdom that he was going to give them when he brought them into the promised land. And Exodus 32 is um, a, a story of what happens after Moses had been up on that mountain receiving the Ten Commandments and the laws of God for a period of 40 days. So picture it, all this stuff had happened. God had miraculously delivered Israel. They came to the mountain in Exodus 19. The, the, the mountain was covered in smoke and lightning and uh, fire, and God's presence was, was speaking from the mountain. And uh, Moses went up, and there's this, we follow carefully the arc of the story. Moses kept going up and down. He'd bring some people with him. He'd come down. He'd receive the Ten Commandments. There's all kinds of movement going on here. Uh, uh, and in fact, Aaron, who factors very prominently in this story, he, he was one of the ones that went up, went up there, in fact, actually saw the feet of God seated on the top of the mountain while the rest of him was veiled in smoke and cloud. Aaron was actually there with Moses and with uh, several of the Israelite elders. They're uh, going up and down the mountain, but then finally, after Moses received the Ten Commandments, and, and uh, the rest of the folks went down except for Joshua, who factors into later biblical history. They're up there for 40 days, Moses and Joshua, while the rest of the Israelites were at the foot of this mountain that was 
had been trembling and lightning and fire and smoke. All of this right after God had delivered them miraculously from Egypt. And what is it they do? They do the very thing that God had told them not to do while uh, he gave the Ten Commandments. They made an idol. And why did they do it? Well, we have a couple of pictures here from the story. In verse 1, it says, When people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they got tired of waiting for Moses. How long were they waiting? Forty days. Forty days. A little over a month, right? So they had a problem that you and I perhaps sometimes have. And that is they had certainly experienced the power of God in their lives, but they're thinking, what has God done for me lately? I haven't done anything for 40 days, 40 whole days. They had this problem of immediacy. They wanted God to be immediately speaking to them when they wanted him to speak. And in a way, they wanted him to speak and act in their lives. They had forgotten so quickly what God had just done, and they were focusing on their immediate circumstances. Do we ever do that? God, what have you done for me lately? Right? Oh, I know. I know. We've been through our ups and downs, and, and we've had uh, uh, so many times, and you've seen me through safely so many times, but right now, this is going on, and God... What are you going to do about it? I need you to act right now. And sometimes uh, we can certainly be forgiven for having that attitude because there are some things that come crashing down sometimes that are really hard to deal with. But what's crashing down on their lives right now? Nothing. Apparently they're just bored with waiting. You ever gotten like that? God, what have you done for me lately? It just seems like, Nothing exciting is going on. And so we want to fill that void of kind of everyday life with something that's exciting and powerful. God, why can't you show up in the way that I want you to show up if we're not careful? Because this is part of human nature to want what we want when we want it. But if we're not careful we can begin to think that God is there as sort of somehow a, a, a cosmic uh, bellhop that we snap our fingers and he shows up and does what we want him to do. The Israelites had a problem with immediacy. They wanted God to act right then, right there, the way they wanted to. And they were bored with waiting. Then they have this other problem, and we go, go on. Uh, and it comes into play when we see how Aaron interacted with the people. So what does Aaron do? He says, Take the, do the earring thing, give, give me some gold to work with. And, and then uh, what they do that, and in verse 4 it says he took what was handed to him, 
made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. We're going to focus on that whole idea. He's using a tool to make this idol. Uh, hold that thought. We're going to mention it a little bit later. But it, when, when we, we see Aaron using a tool, actually he's becoming a tool, if I can use a bad pun here. He is um, falling into a trap that we can fall into today, and I'll call that the trap of relevance. Trap of relevance. Let me, let me um, explain. Where did the Israelites come from recently? God had delivered them from Egypt. Now, Egypt, uh, superpower of the day, but one of several uh, kingdoms in the day, uh, the, the monumental architecture of Egypt survives to this day, and this was thousands and thousands of years ago that this stuff was made. And in fact, Egypt had a, a deep and long history, even at this point so far removed in time from us. All of it was built around this, this monumental architecture which celebrated the many representations of the Egyptian gods that were part of their pantheon and um, idols and representation of gods was the way that the ancient world showed that they had a relationship with the gods that supported them. That was relevance in that day, to have representations of God. That's how it was to be relevant. And when God brought Israel out of the promise, out of the Egypt and was bringing him into the promised land, God was saying, no, I don't want you to make representations of me because God saw in that, rightly so, obviously, because God always, what he says and what he sees is the right way of seeing things. God says, rightly so, don't create an image, a representation of me because there are dangers implicit in that activity. In that activity, people tend to image God the way they want God to be rather than the way God actually is. They make God the way they want him to look like. And so Aaron is, if, if we look at this exchange, it's very interesting. So it says in verse 4, he made it. And then a little bit later it says, then they said, these are your gods. And then in verse 5 it says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar. So he made an idol. They, whoever they is, probably the elders and the leaders that were part of uh, Israel and had been up and down the mountain as part of this deal where Moses was going up and down. And, uh, and now Moses and Joshua are gone for 40 days, but those folks that had actually seen the feet of God as he shrouded in mystery and they, they were part of all that, uh, Aaron makes an idol. They, the people, said, uh, 
these are your gods. And then when Aaron saw this, he built uh, he built an altar and they burnt offerings and had a festival. He made, they said, he saw. See, Aaron has fallen into a trap here, isn't he? Aaron's becoming pretty popular. As the people come to him with their problem, what has God done for us lately? They want an immediate uh, representation of an experience with God. And so Aaron goes, I know what they'll do, and I know what we'll do, and he starts to do it, and guess what? They like that, and it goes on from there. He made, they saw, he said. Uh, they, they made, he made, they said, he saw that it was popular. There is um, a desire for any group of people in the church in particular, but many will do this, uh, any, anyone that seeks to uh, have a positive impact on any group of people, they're going to try to get feedback from that group of people to see what it is that they need or what, what it is that they think they need. They ask, how do you feel? And then respond to what the people are feeling. And in, uh, in the church and in other entities, that's called um, responding to the felt needs of the people. Nothing wrong with trying to understand how people feel. In fact, there's nothing wrong with having feelings. In fact, there's, there's a lot that's good with that. When we don't have feelings, there's a problem, right? So nothing wrong with having feelings. However, we fall into a, a dangerous trap if we act as though how we feel and how people feel uh, as being what uh, an indication of exactly what people need. You see, just because we feel a certain way about something doesn't know we doesn't mean we actually know what it is that's best for us. When a child at the checkout counter feels a burning desire for the candy that's right there within their grasp, that felt need is not particularly. Uh, uh, you know, attuned to what the parents know is their real need. Felt needs are not necessarily the best indication of a direction that we should go. People felt they needed an immediate experience because Moses had been gone for 40 days and it appeared as though God wasn't showing up the way they wanted him to. And so they came to Aaron, and Aaron started to act on that felt need, and people liked what they said. And he saw that, and he continued to run with it and created an idol. And just a word here when it says, uh, they, they, the people, they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. The plural gods there, that's a little confusing. Um, perhaps you've heard in some of the names of God when you look at the Bible in the Old Testament, the, the word Elohim, and that's a Hebrew word. Um, and the im ending is like a S ending for us. Uh, it's a plural form. So it can be translated God or gods. And 
Sometimes in the Hebrew language, there's this construction where the plural is used for a singular object, and it's called the plural of majesty, and that's a whole lot of, uh, uh, you know, grammatical um, mumbo-jumbo, really, about an ancient language, I guess I'm, I'm saying to show you that I, you know, took a Hebrew class or two way back in the day. But the plural of majesty, the idea of using a plural form to uh, represent a singular object is similar to uh, the, the uh, Queen of England, God rest her soul. I don't know if the king does this now, but if he follows tradition, he probably does. When the queen would show up at a certain place and address an audience, she would use the royal we. She said, we are happy to be here. She didn't say, I'm happy to be here, because she was a queen. She, she used the royal we. And you say, well, that's weird. Well, of course it's weird. Yeah, language is weird, right? You buy a pair of shoes, you buy two things. You buy a pair of pants, you buy one thing, right? Language is weird. Pair means, well, one thing here and two things there. If you see, you know, some deer over there, you say, look at those deers. No, they're deer. Well, what about that one deer? What is that? That's a deer. And those, language is weird, right? And so this is a weird thing, this plural of majesty, but included in it is this idea, perhaps, uh, I think, and Christian theologians have certainly shown this to be true, that when Elohim, the plural, is used of the God of the Old Testament, it represents the mystery of God and even alludes to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, three being one. There's just a lot in there. And so when it says here, these are your gods, Israel, it could also be translated, this is your God, Israel. And that's probably what they were saying, because if we go down here to, um, to, to verse 5, Aaron says, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, and that's an English translation of the name in Hebrew for God, Yahweh. This will be a celebration, a festival to Yahweh. So what's really going on here is that Moses is up on the mountain with God, receiving these commands, one of which was, you don't make idols. It's going on right there. They, they're in the shadow of the mountain. They can see the smoke. They can see the fire, the lightning. Right there, that's happening. And at the foot of the mountain, they're getting bored. And so they break that fundamental commandment because they are bored with what God is actually looking like. Right there, and they can see it. On the heels of all that he's done, they're bored. They want immediacy. Tired of waiting around, 40 days. You get it? They are experiencing a, a, a crisis, and there's no immediate danger to cause that to happen. They're just bored that God isn't showing up. And so in order to be relevant to their needs, their felt needs, Aaron is creating an idol. And Aaron and the people together are saying, okay, this is what our God looks like, this golden calf. 
This is what God looks like to us. And it's a distorted image because it's what God had told them not to do. God's name is Yahweh. And uh, have another bad pun. The Bible makes it very clear that sometimes we want Yahweh our way, right? That's what they wanted. But that's not how God wanted himself to be represented to them. Why? Because idols distort the image that God wishes to present to us. Let's take a quick look at another, uh, a few other lenses through which to see this process in which we tend to think God looks like a certain way and distort the image of what God actually wants to reveal himself to be in our lives. Again, as I said, in Exodus 20, uh, Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments, as well as the other uh, uh, laws that are presented to him there. In Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And what are they doing? They are doing exactly that. God doesn't want his people to create idols. And at the tail end of uh, chapter 31, and then a little bit further ahead of where we've just written in 32, we see that God, um, when he is giving the instructions to Moses, he, he wrote them on these tablets of stone. And in, 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 verse, in chapter 31, it says he used the, the finger of God to write these words. And here in uh, verses 15 and 16 of Exodus 32, uh, after Moses is going down the mountain, it says, Moses turned, went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So hearken back to what Aaron did with that idol. It says he worked the gold with a tool, right? He is creating this poor substitute in mockery of what God actually does. God himself gives us what he desires us to see about his character and about his action toward his people contained in his word, the very word of God. And in here, the, the very writing of God inscribed on tablets of stone. And here God's people are substituting that with what this tool Aaron is putting up as a substitute. God showed himself to his people in his presence, in his actions, and now with his word. And God's people were saying, no, I don't, we don't like the way that plays out. We're bored. 
we're going to embellish and do things our way. An idol, um, here in this story, is an actual physical thing. Something that looked like a calf is made out of gold. And um, that's what we tend to think of as an idol. Something that represents uh, a god other than the god uh, that is um, represented in scripture that people bow down to. And that's certainly an idol, but an idol is just a reflection, an image. And uh, we have idols today, but um, and, and there are religions in which depictions are made that show a particular god, but there are other idols that are more symbolic and, um, and uh, metaphorical, meaning they're not actual physical objects that we bow down to worship, but they function in the same way. They try to create God in our image in such a way that God does what we want God to do as opposed to what God really desires to do. They obscure our image of God. There's a theologian, late theologian, uh, Lewis Smead, has a good definition of what an idol is. And I'll paraphrase what I, I remember uh, his description to say. He, he said, to create an idol, you slice one piece off of created reality and set it up with the expectation that miracles would happen. To create an idol, you slice a piece off of created reality and you expect miracles from it. You see, the creation of an idol is, it, it comes from a motivation that we want something. We want something to go our way. That's why we create idols. And idol making involves wanting things to go our way and we want something that God won't supply our way right now and, um, and in, in the way we want God to. Idols involve wanting something to go our way and we don't feel that God is measuring up. That's not how God wishes to work in our lives. See, sometimes God wants us to wait. Sometimes God wants us to endure that which we don't desire to endure. Sometimes God wants to work in the way in, in people's lives around us in a way that we wish those people wouldn't be interacting with us or we wish that perhaps God would be tearing someone down that we think should be teared, torn down but they're doing well, whatever. God doesn't always work the way we want God to work in our lives and in, in and around us. This is how God desires to work. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says this, You show that you're our letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Just like God wrote, on the tablets that he gave to Moses. In an even greater way, God desires to write on our hearts through the Spirit. And that work of the Spirit 
that is an interaction with the Spirit's inner prompting and the Word of God that we received in the Bible, that work is a slow work. And it's a, a work that is not always immediate in terms of a great display of God's power. Very often it's slow and tedious and boring, but it's a good work and it's abiding work. And most importantly, it's the work of God in our lives. That's how God desires to work. And in Colossians 3, verse 5, we have this very interesting picture about idolatry to show that it isn't just something the ancient Israelites did. It didn't, isn't just something that has happened uh, a long time ago, far, far away, something that happens today. Colossians 3, 5, Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Paul seems to think that it's possible to fall into the trap of creating an idol simply by being greedy in some way. How does that work? Well, idols are slicing a piece off of created reality and expecting it to satisfy us in some way that we feel God isn't satisfying us. It comes from a desire to want something to go our way. In other words, wanting something to go our way. That's being greedy, right? Wanting something to go our way that we don't have going our way. And, and, and thinking, perhaps, that there'd be some substitute to God that would satisfy that desire. Or, even more dangerously, thinking that's what God wants for us and having a picture of God that is not accurate and not true and not in accordance with God's word so that we set up a false view of God himself. That's idolatry and that's dangerous business. And we all can fall prey to that. And so how do we keep from making idols in our lives. It's a bad thing. We won't, don't want to do it. Israel did it. But let's continue reading in Exodus 32. So while all this foolishness is going on with Aaron and the people, what's going on up at the mountain? Exodus 32, 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it. They've sacrificed to it. They've said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They're stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the fear of the Lord, sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the, mount, in the mountains and wipe them off from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, 
not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'll give your descendants all this land. I promise them it'll be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. What in the world is going on here? We need to lean into this if we want to truly understand how to prevent ourselves from forming idols in our lives today. Much of our lives are lived in the tension of the mystery that is God's plan for the world. And here in this story, we see the, the mystery, things that are quite not quite uh, uh, at all the way we kind of um, picture things to be, and we, we kind of scratch our heads and wonder, what is this business about God wanting to kill all the people and then Moses got him to change his mind? What on earth is going on there? Well, first of all, what I want to say is that I don't know what's going on here fully. None of us do, right? But let me offer some thoughts here. We know that elsewhere in Scripture it says that God isn't a, like a man, that he changes his mind. Numbers 23.19 says that explicitly. We know that God knows the end from the beginning. He's got a plan. So, so um, how is it? that it appears here that Moses is talking him out of doing something that would, from a human level, would be really, really um, understandable. But when it comes into play with God's interaction with us, it just doesn't make sense. Well, we do see in Scripture that uh, the amazing thing is that God, as amazing as God is, the creator, sustainer of the universe, he wants a relationship with his people. And when he relates to his people he relates in a way that we can understand he condescends to our level and so this interaction between Moses and the Lord is showing that uh, condescension of God to come to come down but I think perhaps uh, even with that in mind what God is doing here is that he's putting Moses to the test because God does that in our lives. He doesn't do it to trick us and uh, uh, trip us up. He does it because he wants us to grow. And so as God is interacting with Moses, he, he, he's saying the people that um, I've delivered, they are, are, are showing uh, just contempt for all that I've done for them. How about Moses, you and I start all over again? What kind of heady stuff is that? Isn't that pretty much what we think of a whole lot of the time, if we're honest? God, these people around me, they don't get it. If you just wipe them out, you and me, God, we're good, right? We're good. I'm good. All right? So you and me, God, we can fix all. That's a, that's a pretty big temptation when you think about it one that we fall into all the time. But God presented that to Moses, not as a temptation to trip, trick him up, uh, trip him up, but a test to show his heart. And Moses passed the test. 
He said, no, God, we gotta, we got to stay the course. You're, uh, the, the world's looking on. They're going to see this, and, and, and they're, they're going to think you know, uh, the wrong things about, no, God, let's, let's not do that. And, and so God is pleased with Moses' answer. Now Moses continues on. He, he actually goes down there and sees what's going on, and he gets angrier than God is, right? Because he, he, he just flips out and, and all the rest, but he acts well here. Um, God is testing Moses. Moses passes the test. So how do we keep from building idols in our life? Well, we take a lesson from how Moses acted here. We allow ourselves to live in the tension of our interaction with God not going exactly the way we would like it to go. And we continue to struggle in that relationship and listen to the Spirit and heed God's Word and interact with God's people even through the struggle. God does not intend for us to live lives of ease with free of all problems as, as, as nice as we think that might be. But God desires to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, not that there's no danger around us, but that he is with us in that struggle. The way we keep from building idols is to struggle in the tension that is a true relationship with God. Because the way God desires us to imagine him the image he wishes us to picture when we think of how he loves us is the image of his son who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, who rose from the, from the dead and will come back again to create his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. God's bigger than our categories, but he's better than we can ever imagine He's Elohim, the plural imagine. He's mysterious. He's, uh, our interaction with him is not always what we think it should be. So if you're struggling, that's okay. God wants us to keep our eyes on Jesus and trust his spirit to write his words on our heart and guide us along the way. Let's pray together. So our God... We thank you for your word, which corrects us when we are tempted to go the wrong way. We ask that you would cause us by your spirit, through your word, as your people, focus our intention on you and that you would tear down any idols in our lives. And in order to do that, we come to you now around your table, the table that Jesus prepared for us and invites us to remember the table that represents his sacrifice for our sins. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.